You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Gary Golden, who is a professionally trained futurist who speaks and consults on issues shaping business and society in the 21st century. He is the founder of Into the Future, designed to empower young people to solve problems in a global context. He works with both the private and nonprofit sector with clients including Boston Scientific, Dell, Disney, Microsoft, California Association of Museums, Harvard University, and many more. Gary received his master's degree from the University of Houston Future Study Program and is a past member on the board of directors of the Association of Professional Futurists. Gary, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to to talk to you about everything you're doing because I think it aligns so well with the podcast. If you want to add anything or introduce yourself or just say hi, that would be great. And I'm excited to get into this conversation. Well, well, nothing to add. I feel like I should hire you to be my PR agent. That was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being here. And we start every episode kind of going through your journey getting into your career. So we're really curious what you were like in high school and university. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, well, to set the context, so I am 47 years old, uh, married. I've got two kids in a, they're in fourth and seventh grade. So I'm just kind of exiting like my midlife crisis and career transition phase. (laughs) Um, And what was I like in high school? In high school, well, I I grew up in Philadelphia uh, in the US in in a very blue collar working class community. So my dad was a welder, my mom worked at McDonald's. It was just kind of like a, just a working class place. And I was always, always felt like the outsider in that world and i was always drawn towards learning about things about the world and social change and uh it was that that time of the uh you know our recent history was the beginning of like sustainability the not really climate change uh related activism but but uh, environmentalism was new so i was involved in clubs it's just a curious kid probably felt a little out of the norm because I was curious about the world, avid reader, you know, just kind of a nothing, nothing off the wall, just just a normal curious kid. Love that. And I was very interested when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I saw that you studied like future studies, which is something mm-hmm. that I had never really heard of before. And that seems like, you know, quite an unconventional degree to, to be able to get. So I was wondering how you chose what to study in university, why you knew that was right for you. And if no one else had ever heard of it, like, did you receive any like questioning or even like backlash from anybody? Mm -hmm. What did my parents say is the real question, right? They're like, you're going to go. (laughs) Um, So, well, first the context of being a futurist, It, it is as unique and kind of novel as it might have been in 1900, and someone said to you, I am an economist, or I am a psychologist, right? The field of macroeconomic studies did not exist in 1900. 
There were no theories of economic change to study. There was no field of psychology or it was just being born in a modern kind of Western context. So futurists study social change. We, 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 we are basically students of, of social change. How did I get there? I started with my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I went to UW-Madison in the early 90s and I studied poli-sci and South Asian studies. Uh, I lived abroad in Nepal and India for two years. So I had kind of an extensive abroad experience. And I also was involved in a program at Madison called the Integrated Liberal Studies Program. So when I took a, a science class, it was also an English class. When I took a literature class, it was also, a, again, a science class. So my undergraduate was very integrative in its approach of subjects. And then I took some time off and I worked and I didn't want to go to graduate school. And, you know, for a few years, I was just kind of hanging out and working, taking a break. And one of the things I got interested in was space tourism. And I became obsessed, like early 20s, you can get obsessed with things. And I was obsessed with space tourism. And I saw the word futurist in one of the magazine articles that I was reading about the future of Mars. And I saw the word futurist and I said, that's what I want to do. And I went and I searched online for futurist. And I discovered at the University of Houston that there is a graduate degree program that trains futurists to go out into the world and work with organizations and help them navigate market transitions. So I, I, I found the field of future studies in an issue of Scientific America. Like I just saw the word and it just jumped out. Well, it's a very cool story. And our next question is kind of about your transition from your studies to your first job. But you mentioned that like you took a bit of a break after your undergrad and you worked a bit. So I'm really curious about like how you got, you know, your first job after your undergrad and then after you got your futurist degree, like how'd you find your first job after that too? Yeah. So, well, I've always worked. I worked in high school. I worked during college. Um, so I had kind of built up I built up a work ethic. I built up kind of the fundamentals of like, can you work on a team before I had left college? I, and this, this is, I think, a, a, a position of, of encouraging people. <laughs> I liked taking a break. It's really nice to finish college and to make just above minimum wage <laughs> and to relax and pay your own bills and be poor and be humble and not jump into growing up too fast. So the first jobs I had out of college were like, I worked for a construction company in the office. I sold shoes at Nordstrom's. Like I did not jump into a professional track career after undergraduate. I took some time to get to know myself. So whether or not people do that, it's up to them. But I really believed in the power of taking a break after school. At the same time, I was laser focused and I knew that I wanted to go to the Houston Future Studies program the entire time. So I was while I was selling women's shoes at Nordstrom, I would be like, I'm going to be a futurist to all my colleagues. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I was in no rush. I was, I was happy to just be a young adult and poor and have a good time. For sure. And then um, I'm really curious about like 
your experience right after your undergrad like you had experience mm -hmm. in a lot of fields like a, a large range of fields yeah. do you think that allowed you to identify like areas of change and growth as in like you're a futurist and then you can like see that and make the connections absolutely so immediately after working or graduating um undergrad i well i just worked i i, I cleaned i i cleaned houses i cleaned dentist's office i was literally a like a, a, a laborer and that was just kind of great experience because you get to see how the world is on that side and i was cleaning to save up money to go back to nepal so i went back to nepal in late in late 1990s i think with three thousand dollars that i had saved up and i went back to nepal and lived for 10 months off of that money and i just learned about a non-western world experience it, that was my chance to like learn about life outside of what I had grown up. So the, the transition from college to the workforce included a major deviation in the environment that I lived in. And, and for me, it was a non-Western kind of setting that I really wanted. And then when I came back, again, I went back and I was just working. I worked for a construction company. And uh, again, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, but I just wanted to grow up a little bit. Wow. And then yeah. how did you transition then from these jobs and going to Nepal and, and then you got your master's at the mm -hmm. University of Houston? After that, how did you transition to being the founder of Into the Future? Was that kind of something mm -hmm. you had while getting your degree or did it come after that? That's a lot longer of a journey. So I finished, well, first of all, when I was, when did I get my real kind of first professional job? It was during graduate school. So when I was in graduate school in the future studies program at the University of Houston, the, the head of the program was connected to a, uh, a nonprofit called the Center for Houston's Future. So this is kind of a think tank based in Houston that works with business leaders to help them anticipate change. So my first kind of quote unquote real professional job was during graduate school. That's when I had the, the credibility to, to, to be kind of welcomed into a professional setting. From there, I leveraged my relationships within the professional futurist community. So during graduate school, there, there's one program in future studies in the nation. Um, so there is an association of professional futurists for all of the practitioners and i attended all of those conferences i was on the email discussion list like i became friends and colleagues with professional futurists as i was preparing to leave the program from the university of houston i was um you know the young researcher that would work for a, a decent wage and I ended up getting hired by a number of different consulting groups. So when I left graduate school, I did not get, I was hired by one firm for a short time, but I was basically for five years working for several different small boutique consulting firms. I was not on staff. I, I pieced together multiple projects at a time and uh and that's how i started my career after about five to seven years i started to develop enough capacity to lead my own projects i started to do enough oh, independent work keynotes workshops that 
people started calling me directly and there was just this magical period. I had my first child, my, my wife and I, um, where people just started to call me. And then I stopped working for other people and I've been independent since, since that time. So more than, more than a decade of being independent. Into the future is something totally different. Like I was a, I was a consultant futurist working for Dell and Microsoft, all these companies. Into the future is a learning enrichment space. So into the future's client base is uh, seven to nine-year-olds. It's totally different. So starting into the future was really about opening up a local business in our Brooklyn community that would help teach young people um, how to imagine different futures. So it, it was a complete deviation from my professional corporate path. That is a, a very interesting path. And it's cool how you kind of started with like, you know, your networking and then from that, like building up your own credibility and brand. And then from there, kind of doing like a 180 to something different. Totally different. But I would love to like know more about like what a futurist is and like mm -hmm. what skills and concepts allow you to become a futurist and what kind of consulting you do as a, as a futurist. Yeah. So, um, well, the, for let's start with the type of work that I've done. So it, in the beginning, it really is project consulting. So you have a, a client, uh, usually a large corporation, and it's a multi-month, you know, a, a three to nine month engagement, and you're going to be doing a big exploration with a small team. So the future of food, the future of supply chains, the future of media, and your job as that consultant is to basically collaborate with their internal small team to develop these point of views about the future. And then their team, the client, has the job to sell that vision within the company. So you, in the, and, and, and this is unique as a futurist, you are not necessarily the voice inside of the client's organization. You are there to inform an internal team that is then going to tell that vision and share that vision. I enjoyed that consulting practice, but it wasn't really my calling. What I ended up really falling in love with was keynotes and workshops. So I really enjoyed keynotes because you, you get up on stage and you are, you're like uh, part inspiration, part insight information. Like you're, you're trying to, you're trying to light a fire under them. You're trying to be a catalyst. And I really enjoyed that kind of in the moment sharing of, of, what I thought was changing their future. It was much more exciting than being on a project for six months, <laughs> which takes a lot of management of expectations from a client perspective. So I really loved keynotes. And then I also loved leadership workshops. So my bread and butter, the thing I do best and make the most amount of money from is uh, doing a workshop for a small leadership team, five to 15 people. And that leadership team is charged with setting strategy for the organization. So the type of work I've migrated towards is more keynote and workshops. Um, the skills, what, what do futurists do? You know, we help people anticipate and lead change. We help them scan for signals of change, you know, kind of in what, what is classically referred to as horizon two or horizon three. So a little bit further out for their company. And then we help them turn those signals into stories and develop scenarios for the future of their industry. And then we help them develop a roadmap to lead that change. 
So we're really, you know, trying to help them expand their sense of what could happen and tell stories that motivate their colleagues to make new investments. Well, that is really inspiring to hear about. And you've worked with some really big corporations as well, like, you know, Dell and Disney and Microsoft. So what's the process of getting industry leaders into your client base? And also, how do you decide when it's the right time to start a new project with a new company? Yeah. So you you listed all the big names. It didn't start there. <laughs> you know, my first clients were... Um, you know, the Northeast Kansas Library Association, you know, very small organizations that, you know, had lower budgets and, and I was just a treat for them. It was like, oh, we're going to have a futurist. Most of the large clients, those clients came from partner organizations that I work with. I, for, for a period of time, I had an agent. So I had somebody that represented me. But I would say that 70% of my jobs come from somebody in that organization seeing me present in front of another group. So let's say I go to, well, this uh, leaving tonight, uh, I will be presenting to Tribal Hub, which is a tribal nation, first peoples of, within the United States, uh, IT leaders. So I am going to be in front of, I think, 800 IT information technology leaders from different tribal nations. Five of those tribal nations will probably hire me later on, right? So work leads to work. Even though I've had agents and I have companies that do sales and development, work has led to work. Being out there, being a present and being visible has, has really driven my client expansion that makes a lot of sense so it's kind yeah. of like doing good work and then people know yep. you for that and then also yep. like putting yourself in places where people can like see what you've been doing so like personal branding kind of yep. thing yep. and i'm really curious like as a futurist you have to be like in the know of areas of technologies and innovation mm -hmm. that are emerging and that can make a lot of change so yeah. what areas of technology or innovation do you think society is overlooking that'll be important in helping us overcome large problems in the world? Yeah. And how do you learn about such technologies and stay up to date with them? Yeah, so um, futures really are, are you're, you're either agnostic to the themes and you're like a process focused futurist and you could go work for any company. You're just, you're about the process. Um, then there are domain focused futurists that are, they specialize in energy, transportation, healthcare. Um, I tend to lean towards domain expertise work. So how do I stay current on those domains? I follow smart people who are experts in that field. So I follow really smart people in the field of healthcare and finance and blockchain and, and media. And I follow them on Twitter. And when those people say, hey, watch this video, uh, read this book, pay attention to this startup, I pay attention. And I organize all of my scanning and my signals. I'm very thorough in, in that research. And it's constant. Every day, I am constantly learning about new things. So, and then I've built an expertise just by having in-depth projects across different fields. I, you know, I will literally go from the future of food to healthcare, to natural gas, 
and I can speak with leaders with a sense of authority. So it just takes time. That makes sense. And do you think like the large areas of innovation or technology are going to be like niche things that the majority of the public does not know about? Or, you know, the the things most people know about, like the kind of more mainstream emerging technologies? So, well, it'd be both. But what am I going to focus on as futurists? It's going to be emerging tech. I'm going to talk to them about the future of decentralization. <laughs> um, you know, what is what is crypto and blockchain really about? What does it mean to have decentralized identity, decentralized governance, decentralized assets? What does it mean to decouple the government from currency? I'm not going to get up and talk about the future of apps. Usually emerging themes. And then also, you know, I focus a lot on um, mental health and mental well-being. It's not, when you talk about the future, there's like, there's a spectrum. On the one side, it's like cultural, social fabric stuff, you know, social justice. And, and do people have a sense of purpose and meaning and like the real, the real deal stuff. And then there's like technology and globalization and social media. And I try to balance kind of the the sparkly tech stuff with like real deal social fabric issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That makes yeah. sense. And then you also mentioned briefly that there are kind of two types of futurism. So mm -hmm. I know you're not a huge fan of this kind where it's kind of like a, a generalist futurist that just has a process they follow and they can work anywhere. But I'll be really curious to know what is the process of futurism? So, well, there are many things. There's what futurists do, there's, think of threefold. One is we investigate change. So we're scanning for signals of change. And there are different techniques and frameworks for scanning for signals, right? It's, there, there's, there's, you know, the steep categories of change. There's leading indicator analysis. There's, there's things that you get into the weeds on. And then you imagine implications. So you've investigated, found the signals, you imagine implications. And how do you develop scenarios and forecasts? So futurists will have their own approaches to creating scenarios. So what, you know, you may have an approach to creating scenarios. It's got these, these elements and, you know, someone else is a different structure. And then we lead, we help people lead change, inspire the change. And those frameworks are going to be based off of like road mapping, visioning and backcasting, right? So imagining the future and then backcasting to the present highlighting all the steps and stages you need to reach. So it's all kind of one process and each futurist is going to have their own branded version just because they need to try to appear unique to potential customers. But it's all the same thing. It it's it's all all the same thing. I like how you talked about, you know, you can have like a futuristic technology that you're talking about, but it's also important to like backtrack and talk about how you get to scaling that and how you make something like blockchain or decentralization widespread. And something I wanted to ask you about, just because you're so focused on the future and innovation was within energy. Um, and if you ever kind of done any workshops on that, because energy is obviously really picking up renewable energy is really picking up and so i would love to hear your thoughts on you know how you envision the future of energy uh and specific steps that you think we need to take to to get to a place where we have renewable energy completely overtaking fossil fuels sure 
So energy is actually the thing that I know the most about. Ener energy and transportation is probably the most important intersection of uh, industrial change. And energy is the thing that I focus the most on. And within that world, I really focus a lot on the emerging energy ecosystems built around hydrogen. So when you think about the global energy system, there are, there are two theses, two theories of like, how do we solve this? One is electrification. You electrify everything. You electrify heat, transport, all this stuff. And it's literally like copper wire electricity, electrons. And that electrification of everything is kind of the dominant strategy. And then the emerging one, and I one that, the one that I think is going to really dominate and change the scene is decarbonization. And decarbonization says you're still going to use molecules. Uh, electricity powers the future, but you still need like the properties of molecules, of chemical bonds. 80% of the world's energy comes from molecules. It comes from natural gas, coal, et cetera. Hydrogen is a strategy of decarbonization. Hydrogen can become electricity in a single step using a fuel cell. Electricity can become hydrogen in a single step using a electrolyzer. So how do you scale renewable wind and solar and nuclear and geothermal and all CO2 free inputs? You can't scale it using batteries because you can't store large amounts of energy in batteries, but you can scale solar and wind through hydrogen. So if you have a lot of resource in wind or solar, Right now, you can only build as much as the grid can handle. If you convert that solar or wind energy into hydrogen by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen, you can store as much solar and wind as you want. It's, it's, it's infinitely scalable. And if you are Chile or Brazil or Scotland or Greenland or, Ice or Iceland and you have large amounts of CO2-free energy, you can ship hydrogen to a place that doesn't. So hydrogen is a global energy commodity. So I am, and there are people that hate hydrogen. There are people that think hydrogen is like this scam of big oil and blah, blah, blah. But green hydrogen, which is the creation of hydrogen from CO2 free inputs, has nearly a trillion dollars of investments planned today. And it's the largest story in the global energy conversation today and it's going to define the next 20 years. The only way that we can replace 80% of molecular energy in the economy is by having molecules that can do what that natural gas and oil does, which is it releases a lot of energy, it can be stored, high volume, long duration, and I can ship it anywhere in the world. Batteries, ugh. Batteries do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I am like an anti-Elon Musk person. <laughs> like the battery electric vehicle will fail to scale versus the hydrogen fuel cell electric car, right? Battery storage for the grid will fail. It, it, you, you need long, long duration, high volume. And the only thing that can do that is hydrogen. Oh, that is interesting to hear <laughs> your perspective on that because I've heard a lot of different perspectives yeah. about, you know, batteries and hydrogen. And I know Elon Musk definitely hates hydrogen. I was doing research into that. There are some people who are advertly opposed to it, but that is interesting to hear about.
and Maybe. also <laughs> and also just like considering hydrogen in context of other energy sources and using them in tandem like with solar energy and with wind power to enhance those that's interesting and i think hydrogen is an example of one of these kind of like emerging technologies that youth need to be really aware about because a lot of the time in schools you're not really taught about these emerging technologies no. you're more just taught like you know things like the basis of biology and like going to physics but less about applying them um and learning about you know how the future of innovation is changing and so that's why it's really inspiring to hear about what you're doing and you have worked closely with students and leaders from k-12 schools colleges and universities to help close this gap between the pace and direction of change happening in the world versus you know happening inside of the classroom and this is something I've noticed a lot as well, like kind of trying to do some research outside of school and then just seeing how that contrasts to what I am doing in school. And a lot of the time inside of school, it's really nothing to do with applying your learnings and applying the science. And so I'm curious, like, why did you decide it was important to bring educational institutions into your client base? And can you tell us a little bit more about how you envision the future of education? Sure. So I've always you know, well, during those years of, of giving keynotes and all this stuff, I've always been invited through friends and, you know, just folks in my world to like come to their class. So like, oh my, you know, could you come to my fourth grade class? And, you know, for, for a few years, I was, I was just doing this maybe once or twice a year. And every time I left the environment, with young kids, I was like, oh my God, that was so much more fun than working with like corporate leaders. <laughs> like I walked out of the second grade classroom, like that was awesome. And I never walked out of like a workshop going, that was so much fun. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I, I directly experienced what it was like to open up the mind of a young person, right? And into the future as a business, was a way to scratch that itch. It was like, look, we, we live in a community in Brooklyn with tons of kids. I mean, there's like thousands of kids. So like, it's a, it's a place where learning enrichment businesses physically, physically there, like retail storefront can thrive. And I wanted to do something in the education enrichment space that was real world, not online. I wanted to do it with kids in my presence. So the vision here is to create a learning enrichment brand, whether it's called Into the Future or something else, that takes all of the lessons that we do here at Into the Future, the modules, so we, the future of energy, the future of clothes, the future of food, all of the things that we build with the kids, and create a set of modules that I can then, uh, uh, sell to schools and sell to parents and sell to nonprofits. So I don't want to necessarily scale myself as a company. I want to scale as like a media brand that empowers other people to engage young people in thinking about how the future might be different. So I know firsthand that kids don't learn anything about the future in school. Nobody's teaching them about AI. Nobody's teaching them about uh, mental health. Well, med, that's a lie. They are talking about mental health in schools, but but in a different way. And they're not learning about hydrogen, you know. So 
I'm at the beginning of this, so I don't have a full answer, but I, I see the future of education being transformed by non-institutional experiences. So enrichment education is like, it's like spending money that you would use to go to a movie. It's, it's discretionary spending. So I am trying to play into the world of enrichment education, not, not necessarily school-based education. Mm -hmm. And enrichment education, I think, is awesome because it lets like a, a spark in kids and then they can like go on with their own curiosity and take it any way they want, which yeah. is something I think often like schools lack. They lack, you know, like giving a spark to people that makes them want to like learn on their own and like tailor their own path. Mm -hmm. So it's great what you're doing. And we're nearing the end of our podcast. Before we end it, we always ask our guests to give three action items to our listeners. So these action items can be anything you want listeners to be just left with. It can even be like research hydrogen. Uh, <laughs> so what are the three things you would want to, you know, leave with our listeners? Yeah. So, well, let's, let's like themes to learn about. Um, I think that your generation really is going to, to enter a world that is shaped by, well, many things, but people need to understand different cultures and different worldviews. So there is, uh, there's a framework called spiral dynamics, which may be a lot to handle for some, but it's called spiral dynamics. And it's basically a, a framework to understand uh, worldviews that exist around the world. So traditionalism, modernism, et cetera. So that's the first theme. Second theme is mental health and mental well-being and really understanding and keeping check with uh, uh, those conversations around how mental wellness, mental well-being is potentially the lever to solve all of our social ills. And then the third theme would be decentralization. This is the blockchain crypto stuff. It's not, it's not about decentralized currencies. It's about decentralized identity, decentralized governance and decision-making. So those are the three themes. And then let me just give a second thing because that's a lot. The second thing is to think about yourself in a way that is often described by HR leaders uh, in the workforce uh, as either an I-shaped or a T-shaped individual. So an I-shaped individual, someone has depth of expertise in a particular domain. I'm a librarian, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm an engineer. And a T-shaped individual has depth of expertise that I, and then they cross the I to make a T with other skill sets. So I'm also also trained in ethics, in DEI work, in e-learning, in data science. So I would suggest for, for you know, your audience to think of themselves in that I-shaped versus T-shaped framework. You're about to enter the world of building the I. You're going to go to college or in high school, whatever it is, going into the depth of expertise. But know that really what the world wants is that T-shaped person. So a whole different set of skill sets and mindsets to complement that expertise. And that's it. Have fun, journal, meditate, be healthy. Those are great action items. And I really like how you kind of left like things to research so like people can go off and like learn more about them and then like potentially work on them. So thank you so much for doing right. that. And thank you for being on this podcast. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much.